higher than I've ever been. Yeah. <clears throat> I have heard once a bird has a broken wing, it will never fly high anymore but let me tell you what I know that's not always so for once I lay broken and sore I fell from above like a wound with no hope of ever climbing again but with grace from above and God's marvelous love I'm flying higher than I've ever been I can see heaven's door, I'm flying higher than I've ever been. <clears throat> yes, I fell by the way, life's wounded prey, then old Satan like a vulture swept low in my darkest hour he came to devour what was left of my dying soul as low as life God was not finished yet. He saw more good than I ever saw in me. Now I live above doubt, so high as the clouds, I can't see the tops of the
I can see heaven's door. I'm flying higher than I've ever been. Thank you, Rhonda. Absolutely beautiful. And thank you all for your music selection tonight and leading us in worship through that. If you have your Bible or something that opens up your Bible, open it up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Power, uh, the, the message of this sermon or the title of the sermon is The Power of God Does Not Need Our Sword. And uh, I find this to be a very interesting and intriguing sequence in Scripture. Have you ever known that something bad was going to happen without a shadow of a doubt? You knew it was going to happen, and you knew it was going to happen to you, and you went forward anyway, even though, even though you knew something bad was going to happen. I, the only thing I could think of to kind of illustrate my point is when I was in college, I had this old... 83 Delta 88 Oldsmobile. It was a hand-me-down car. I was glad to have it, but it wasn't the most reliable car in the world. It had left me stranded on the road a few times in my day. In fact, I remember pushing it a mile down the road. If you know what kind of car I'm talking about, this is a big old car. I was in pretty good shape in college, and I pushed it a mile down the road uh, because the alternator went out, at it, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning. I was coming home from work. I had a job at a restaurant, and I uh, anyway, long story short, that was just one of the occasions that had stranded me. So I knew it was not a very reliable car, and so from that point forward, I never took it on long road trips, long being more than about 40 miles, because I just knew it would let me down. And so I knew that bad thing possibly could happen, and so I avoided that situation. But have you ever known something bad was going to happen, yet you didn't avoid that situation? We kind of have that going on. Tonight, Jesus knows precisely what is going to happen, yet he goes on with the plan anyway. Just a recap, we looked at John chapter 17 last Sunday night. He had been having this wonderful time of prayer where he prayed for the glory of God, where he prayed for his disciples, where he prayed for the future disciples, those who would believe because of the testimony of his apostles. And now he says, Amen. And basically we have the scene where he goes into the garden and he knows what is awaiting him. And yet he goes on with the plan anyway. And as we know now, living on this side of the cross, this sequence ushers in this horrible moment in humanity's history where the giver of all good things is put to death. So without too much more, let's read our scripture. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And you know the other gospels named that the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, that would come upon him, see there it is, he knew, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which she spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Peter said to, or Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just pray uh, that we would grasp this content and the application that you want for us this evening. Lord, bless these that are here. Bless those that we are missing. And it's your Lord, Lord, we pray your name would be glorified. And it's your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So again, I find this sequence of events interesting because of some scenes that occur in this story. The first scene is this. Jesus causes the crowd to fall over, or the mob, if you will, to fall over. They had shown up in the garden. They were ready to arrest him. They were led by the betrayer, Judas, and here they are, ready to arrest him. And they ask this question, or he asks this question, whom are you seeking? And they replied, Jesus. And he says, I am he. And boom, they all get knocked over like a bunch of bowling pins hit by a bowling ball. Perhaps you've heard it said that if God had willed it, he could have sent a legion of angels or thousands of angels to rescue Jesus from this moment or rescue Jesus from the cross. But right here you see Jesus had the power on his own. He didn't need the angels. He could have rescued himself not only from this scene, but from all of the scenes uh, going forward, uh, even to the murder of himself. But we see because of this, it paints a picture of the fact that Jesus had with him himself not only the power to free himself, but the power to submit himself to the scene. The murder of God was foreordained by God himself. And we truly realize it at this moment, that we not only see his plan taking shape, but even his power of, over humanity and his power and his ability to escape this scene, yet he doesn't take advantage of it. Yet he submits himself. And what does he do in this scene? He's able to knock the crowd over, and then he's able to say, let these other guys go. Let my disciples go. And then he starts quoting prophecy to them. I love this. The scene. He knocks the crowd over. They're in amazement. Hey, you know, it doesn't even say they get themselves off or get themselves up. And so I wonder, he asks them again, who are you seeking? Are they all still on the ground? Um, we're looking for Jesus. <laughs> Why on earth would this confession knock them over? I wonder. When he says, I am he, and it knocks them over. You know, there are moments in our lives where the mind or the motions that they can be overwhelmed. What happens is we literally pass out. Perhaps you've experienced a huge emotional moment in your life or even a stress-filled situation, or perhaps you've been so physically fatigued that something overwhelmed you and you completely, maybe even fainted. 
the only experience I can draw on is the birth of my youngest, Josiah. I was able to be present for all of the births of my children. I mean, when I say present, I mean ringside seats. I was there. I cut the umbilical cord of all four of my children right there next to Kathleen in the moment. And all, all the first three, the, all, first, uh, all three of the first kids, am I saying that right? Jordan, Ethan, and Micah, everything went fine. Didn't have a single problem. Didn't get woozy. Didn't, you know, experience faint-heartedness or anything like that. And then whenever Josiah was born, I don't know what was going on. I don't know if it was, it was emotions of the moment. It had been a long day. We were at the end of the day. Uh, we think it was a, a Sunday, if I remember right. So I was already worn out from a day of ministry. I was in dress clothes. I do remember that. It was hot. It was in May, which, you know, in Texas can be a hot time of year. And I believe that time of year it was hot. I hadn't had much to eat that day. Believe it or not, I hadn't had much to eat that day. And I, I don't know what it was, but one moment I'm sitting there going, okay, Kathleen, you can do it. Bush, you know, all the, you know, the coaching things that our husbands do. And the next thing I know, I'm in a chair across the room and they're giving me orange juice. I don't know what happened, but I blacked out in that moment. That was not the power that I'm talking about, but that's the idea of what happens to this mob. Jesus says, I am he, and they black out. That is the power of God. And we cannot even begin to fathom the immense power just being in the presence of God brings. The truth and word of God is a powerful thing, but the presence of God and his word, wow. I think about Isaiah chapter 6, when God shows up and the prophet what does he say? When he realizes he's in the presence of God and he is hearing the word of God, what does he say? Woe is me. I am a ruined man because I am an unclean lips and I am of a people of unclean lips. Woe, woe is me. Blown away from the moment. Think about Job. In the book of Job, Job is just complaining. He is, he is belittling God. He is saying, where are you? And all of that. And then what happens? God shows up, and what does Job say? Whoa, I am sorry, Lord. I realize now how stupid I am. I will be quiet, and you just say what you want to say. Let me have it. Lower the boom. When we get in the presence of God, in the word of God, it just has a power we can't even begin to fathom. And this power can knock over the enemy with a single word, I am. The he actually isn't there in the scripture. What is actually there is just the word we would in the Hebrew say, Yahweh, I am. When they say, we're looking for Jesus, he replies, I am. I am that I am. Connecting him back to the God of Jacob and the God of Israel. What an immense type of power. And if you were to do a survey of the Gospels, and especially his healings, Jesus often uh, demonstrated his power with just the spoken word. You know, when we think about blind Bartimaeus and how Jesus spit in the, mud, in the dirt and made some mud and put it on his eyes, we're thinking, oh, well, there was something special in that dirt, right? Or something special in that. I really think Jesus did it for just kicks and giggles. I, I, don't, I think he just did it for fun. I don't, because, well, for instance, in, in this very gospel, John chapter 4, verse 50, don't turn there, write it down, but a man comes to him for his son's healing, and Jesus heals the man's son without ever seeing the boy or going to where the boy is. He just simply says, go, your son has been healed. Or in Mark chapter 7, verse 29, again, write that down. 
a woman comes to him, a Gentile woman nevertheless, and asks that her daughter be healed. She is possessed with a demon, and Jesus says, go, your daughter is healed. Never sees her, never touches her, never even speaks to the daughter. He just heals with the spoken word. These are just a couple of instances where Jesus' immense power is demonstrated by the spoken word, by his very presence, his ability. This is the power of God. This is the power of God that says, Peter, put away your sword. It is not only a display of his power in the arrest scene, something happens. Something happens. Peter decides to take out his sword and cut off the ear of a guy named Malchus. I, I love Peter. I love his issues. I love how messed up he is. I love his transformation. I love how one moment he is boldly speaking for the name of Christ, and the next moment he is sticking his foot in his mouth. I think I love him because I relate to him so well. One moment he is doing great things for the glory of God, and the next moment he is not doing such great things. I feel like I relate to him. Was he really aiming for the ear, I wonder? If he was aiming for the ear of Malchus, man, nice shot, right? But who stops a coming, uh, a coming enemy with an ear blow, right? I think he was aiming for something else, and he needs to work on his aim. Now, in John's gospel, the story of Malchus and his ear ends right there. But in the gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 51, it tells us that Jesus touches the ear and healed him. I mean, just imagine that scene. Just, just imagine this moment. What, what must have Malchus been thinking? He had a sword, according to the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, he had drawn that sword and was progressing towards Jesus when Peter decided to act on Jesus' behalf. So he was used to putting himself into dangerous situations. He was a professional at his job. He was there to arrest Jesus, who was rumored to be an insurrectionist. So Malchus was probably used to using his sword before. Perhaps he had even killed someone with that very sword. But this time he is blindsided by a fisherman. I wonder what he was thinking. Are we going to get hazard pay for this? Am I going to get workers comp for this work-related injury? I don't know. But then the unbelievable happens. One moment he's looking at the ground at a bloody nub on the ground, and the next moment this guy that he has come to arrest who has just knocked them down with his very word, I am, is touching his ear and healing him. Not only was, what was Malchus thinking, but what was the rest of the crowd? What were the disciples thinking? They just saw an ear grow on the side of this guy's head. That's immense. That's, that's powerful. That is, can you imagine the compassion and the mercy that Jesus was filled with that would cause him to make such a gracious response in the face of vehement hate. They hated him, and yet he graciously reaches out and heals their injury. That's not the only scene that happens here. The final scene I want you to see is then Jesus turns to Peter and rebukes him. Jesus has re has uh, has gotten released for his disciples so they could run away. Peter's already struck off the ear. Jesus has healed the ear, and now Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? The scene is simply, I entitled it, Jesus does not need Peter's sword. 
It's a rebuke that Peter receives. I'm sure Peter is thinking he's done a good thing, right? He has just defended his Lord and the Son of God. Peter was the only one to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter had just heard from Jesus, you're going to deny me. I imagine Peter was like, deny you? I just protected you, huh? What do you think about that? I'm sure in this moment he might have even thought, look at what I just did. Maybe the other disciples were giving him fist bumps and high fives. Way to go, Peter, good job. Then he gets this rebuke. Instead of a thanks, he gets, Peter, put away your sword. But this is not what Jesus wants. He's not wanting to incite a rebellion. He's not wanting to resist the will of the Father as he replies to Peter in verse 11, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And so what we see here is another display of Jesus' power. Jesus did not need Peter's sword because he had control of all things and all things were a part of his design, foreordained plan for his crucifixion. That's immense power to say, I could be free right now. My disciples are ready to fight on my behalf. Peter, put away your sword. I'm ready to accept the will even though I know what the will of the Father will bring. Much, much pain. There's an underlying message here, I think, for us. Jesus didn't need Peter's sword. He doesn't need our sword either. Sometimes we feel like we need to take up and defend Jesus in a number of ways. Just to pick on one, does God really need us to pack heat? I wonder. As we consider the climate of our country and the current debate on gun control, I, I want to be careful to express myself clearly. Listen, I like owning guns. I like to hunt. I like to take my kids out to shoot clay pigeons over at Vance's property and anything else we can shoot at and not get arrested for. I like having the right to bear arms, and if need be, then I can protect myself from intruders in dangerous situations. I, I like that. In my American mindset, it concerns me that there's so much talk about gun control and further legislation, accessing, further legislating access to weapons, because I know the law of progression works like this. First we prohibit this, and then we prohibit that, and then before you know it, everything is being prohibited. It's the whole give them an inch, they will take a mile mindset. So if they outlaw automatic weapons, then it'll only be a matter of time before they outlaw other types of guns, and before you know it, the only ones with guns are the ones that should not have guns to begin with. So I have that concern in my mind, okay? You know my mindset, you know my opinion on this, you know I believe in the right to tote our guns and own guns and so on. Now, that's why I, I'm saying all this because I want you to hear me out where I'm going with this. If the decision is made to take away our guns, Christian, it is not the end of the world. If the decision is made to take away our guns, Christian, this is not a type of religious persecution. If the decision is made to take away our guns, this is not a source of danger for us. The same question I asked this morning, I ask again. Christian, what is the worst they can do to us? What is the worst that they can do to us? If you're a born-again believer, our security doesn't lie in our ability to protect ourselves. Do we really believe in God we trust, or, do, or is it in Smith & Wesson we trust? You know what I'm saying? What's the worst they can, they can do to us? Paul says, to live is gain, to 
die is Christ, or to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mix that one up. As we consider the religious persecution going on around the world and the persecution that occurred generations ago for those who took up the cross of Christ, my concern is, is that Christian Americans are going to somehow relate the taking of our right to bear arms as a form of religious persecution. It is not. And in fact, I would argue that with this scripture, Peter put away your sword, and many others like it, God does not need us to bear arms when, not if, but when the day comes we are persecuted in this country for our faith. Why do I say that? Why would I say such a thing? Because scripture, such as Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, says, we should count it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ Jesus. Let me just read that for you. It says, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Listen, it's awfully hard to suffer for the sake of Christ if we are going down in a blaze of glory, armed to the hilt with every gun we can have. And so I must ask, what is our trust in? Is it in God or is it in the right to bear arms? You see, at this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter is, I mean, he's so boldly holding that sword, he's so proud of what he's done, and Jesus says, put away your sword. Jesus is saying, Peter, I need my will to happen and not your will to happen. My hope is that if Christians utter these words, they can, they can have it when they pry it out of my cold, dead hands. They will be referring to the greatest weapon we've ever been given, the Word of God, and not my gun. Again, I'm not saying we should not have guns or even carry guns. I'm not saying that I promote gun regulation. I think I've, I've, I've made my case. As long as it is my right to have guns, let it be so. Jesus even encouraged us to have a sword. Why? Because we do need to be able to protect ourselves against bandits, against thieves, against those who want to bring harm against our families and those that cannot help themselves. I believe that's why he says, have a sword with you. But when it comes to suffering for the name of Christ, and I mean they're ready to put you to death because you will not shut up about your faith in Jesus Christ, we need to put our swords away. We need to let the will of God take place and trust in Him. When it came to suffering for the name of Jesus, the will of God is that we would trust in Him and His will for our lives. You know, that's hard. I so appreciated it. In our Sunday school class this morning, Jim was talking about faith. So appreciate what he had to say. He said, I'm so ready to go and do my own thing. I often forget to go to God first. When it comes to our protection, Christian, we should go to God first. Again, I'm not saying let's get rid of our, rid of our guns. I want guns. <laughs> I, I like that right. I like having that right. But the will of God is that we would trust in Him and His will for our lives. That we would learn that the greatest weapons that we can fight with are actually spiritually spiritual weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not weapons of this world, is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, we're given this wonderful list of armor, of weapons that we can use in the battle that is most important. You know what those spiritual weapons are? They're things like prayer, the Word of God, our salvation, our faith. Again, I'm not saying let's put down our weapons. I 
am saying there comes a time where we have to trust in God more than we do our sight on Him. I want to ask for the sake of just thinking about, uh, about these questions, I want to ask you a couple of things. It, it, this is not to answer out loud, but just to, to, to think about. What is the greatest power shown in this scripture? Is it the power of no, knocking over the mob with a single word, I am? That's, that was some immense power. I, I, I mean, I wish I could have been there. We, we see the fake preachers on TV slaying people in the spirit. Listen, Jesus slayed them with a single word. Man, I would have loved to have seen that. Or perhaps it's the power to graciously heal his attacker. That's a, that's a power of compassion. That's a power of grace. That's a power of mercy. You know, it takes immense power to not retaliate against someone coming at us, but instead to say, let me help you. You were going to hurt me, and I'm going to help you. Perhaps it was the power of healing, the power to heal the ear of Malchus. Was that the greatest power shown in this moment? That was a lot of power to grow an ear. I mean, it takes nine months in the womb of your mama to grow your ears. And Jesus does it in just a split second, right? Maybe it was this, the power to submit to the plan of the Father, even, he knows, even though he knows the pain that awaits him. That's some immense power. That's a power of humility. That's a power of submission. Have you ever thought about when you submit to God's will for your life, whether it be in obedience to his commands, whether it be in obedience to what he wants you to do, like sharing the gospel with someone or lending a helping hand or loving someone who hasn't loved you. When you think about following in the will of God and submitting to his will, have you ever thought, that's, take, that's taken some power? Where does that power come from? It's not come from us, has it? It's come from God. I would ask you to think about these thoughts. Think about the immense power that is shown and think about how that same power is available to us when we trust in God as our Lord, as our Savior, as the creator of the universe. And we recognize, do I really believe that all things are in His hands? And if so, how am I living that out every single day? Am I trusting in His will over the, my own ability to make my will Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its confession of who you are, the God of the universe who is so powerful. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would make yourself known in us, to us, and through us. It is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus.